Good morning. <laughs> have you ever had one of those moments, uh, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, one of those moments where you realize that you made a snap judgment about someone that wasn't right? You ever had one of those moments? I, uh, I mean, the sad thing is, when I was thinking about this, there were a lot of examples came to mind. <laughs> Uh, one of them was my wife. Uh, I'll save that story for another day. I remember, uh, maybe I'll just tell it anyway. But no, no, I won't. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I remember back in college, um, there, I mean, doing a math degree, snap judgments are being made right now. <laughs> but I remember, I remember being in my course, and I mean, th there are a few kind of groups of people that kind of hovered around, and there was a, a group of people that were like the year or two above me in college. And I remember, I mean, I had this friend, her name was Samantha. Samantha was really attractive. Guys really liked Samantha. And I remember this guy who was a couple of, I think he was the year above me. And he, uh, he was a really good looking guy. He dressed really well. He hung out with a bunch of lads. Um, and they were always kind of horsing around. And whenever Sam was around, these guys were always like kind of hitting on Sam. And this guy, Paul, was the worst of them. And I don't even remember what happened. We were like taking the train one day. And, and I can't remember what he did or what he said, but I was just like, this dude is like a jerk. And, and from then on, whenever I saw him, I just went out my way to avoid him. Like, I wanted nothing to do with this guy. Total douchebag. He was hitting on my friend. He was a total player. He's going to like tear her heart out. He's going to use her and discard her and all this stuff. And then like further on down the line, I remember there was another girl um, called Storm. Storm was awesome. She was the year below me. She just started. And all of a sudden, Paul is like chasing after Storm. And I'm like, you don't come in after these innocent young girls and, and, and do what you do to them. And so I remember one day sitting in Starbucks and in walks Storm and I'm, I'm, I'm chatting away and, and just hearing how she's doing and settling to, to college and whatever. And then in walks Paul. I'm thinking, what a douchebag, like, what are you doing here? You're invading my territory. And then he comes up and he puts his arm around Storm and Storm's all like giggly. And I'm thinking, what are you doing with him? Do you not know what kind of guy this is? And then, and then she introduces him to me and it's the first time we've ever talked. And he's really polite and really eloquent and really sweet. And as he turns around and says something to her, so uplifting and gushy, I'm just like, oh my goodness, he's like head over heels. And then we start this conversation. He was this guy, like, spiritually hungry, open, kind, loving, like, not a player at all, not a jerk at all, this super sweet guy. And I remember, like, walking away from the conversation going, oh, my goodness. Like, I wrote this guy off in so many ways from a snap judgment based on one interaction one day. And, and the reality is I've got story after story, as do you. <laughs> of the way that we do that. Someone that doesn't fit our mold, that doesn't look the way we think they should, doesn't talk the way we, we think they should. They drink, they smoke, they do yoga, they party, they're, they're from Scotland. Uh, and so we make all of these judgments about people and, and, and we don't realize like what we're doing. We don't realize the impact of it. And then we end up relating to people for the rest of the relationship based on this judgment that's not true. Um, and, and, and it's the reality. It's human condition. It's the reality that we walk in. I'm pretty sure even Daniel, you're like the holiest person I know. I'm sure you even do this as well. <laughs> but, 
But it's just what we do. So, you know, we're, we're going to look at this today in Acts chapter 10. This, this passage is all about these judgments and these predispositions that we have. Um, but remember, we're in this series, Sent. What are we trying to do? We're trying to rediscover God's heart for the church. Who are we supposed to be? How are we supposed to function? And so let's jump into Acts chapter 10. We're going to look at the story of Peter and Cornelius. Um, and we're going to look at the judgments that are in play and what God does to break these down. So this is Acts chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. So if you're not there already, this guy is not a Jew. He's one of the people that have come in with the Romans to take over Jerusalem, so people don't like him. Uh, he's in what's known as the Italian Regiment. So it's the Italian Regiment. It's tied to Rome. So this is the height of like Roman power that this guy's attached to. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! I don't know how he'd say it. Cornelius! Uh, it's got an exclamation point. I don't know what angelic voice. They sound Scottish, right? Cornelius. Uh, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and then sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheep being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men set by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up, he said, I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. 
But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who'd come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So they or he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So we're in this little section, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11. Actually, kind of Acts 10 and Acts 11 are one story, but I thought I would spare you. It's a couple of weeks where we've done really, really long readings. So I was like, we'll split it up. You can listen to me for an extra week. It's great. Um, but this, this is the beginning of the story. We're going to see the continuation next week. Um, but before we jump into what this passage is saying to us, I want to give us some geographical context. I think this is often helpful when it comes to the book of Acts. And then when they start listing place names and you're like, what on earth is going on? So remember the commission in Acts 1.8. Uh, Jesus gives the commission to the disciples as they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so I've said this a couple of times. When you're reading the book of Acts, the book of Acts is organized in that pattern. So all the way through the end of chapter 8 and into the beginning of chapter 9, everything is focused in Jerusalem. Then uh, Stephen's killed, Saul comes on the scene, and it starts to spread into uh, Judea and Samaria. And then after we hit here, 10, 11, and onwards, the gospel's going to spread out to the ends of the earth. So you can see the bottom arrow is pointing at Jerusalem, the, the yellowish part on the bottom, and then the little part above it is Judea and Samaria. So the gospel's spreading from Jerusalem, it's spreading to Judea and Samaria, and then from there it's going out into the ends of the earth. 
Um, we've just been following some stories. Things have happened in Jerusalem. Last week, as we looked at chapter 9, at the end of Saul's story, you've got these stories with Peter, where he ends up going into Lydda. So if you go up from Jerusalem towards the second arrow, Joppa, he goes from Jerusalem up towards Lydda, where he meets Aeneas. And then he makes his way from there to Joppa, where he encounters Tabitha. And so, so now th- that's where we left off. He's in Joppa. And now we're starting this story with uh, with Cornelius up in Caesarea. So they're both on the coast um, doing some work there. But I just think it's interesting that that God has gradually been bringing Peter from Jerusalem to Lydda up the coast towards Joppa, getting him ready for this interaction with Cornelius. This is not by accident. God is sovereignly guiding these events to happen together. But but when you're reading a, a story like this, when we're in the Bible, it's easy to forget. We don't know where the places are. So sometimes it helps us to stick a map up so that you know where we are. Uh, and you know what's going on. So we're in the part of the story in chapter 10 where, where the book of Acts is expanding. We've moved out of Jerusalem. We've moved into Judea and Samaria. And now we get this story while it's happening in the, the, the northwestern part of Judea. It's, it's about to break out into the ends of the earth. And in order for that to happen, something needs to change. The relationship between Jew and Gentile needs to be clarified in order for God's words to go forward. So that's where we're at in this story. So, I mean, we read it. You've got, you've got Simon. He's sitting in the home of Simon, or Simon Peter in the home of Simon the Tanner. Now, remember last week I told you that my app glitched and I got that verse over and over and over and over again. Simon, uh, Peter went and stayed at the home of Simon the Tanner in Joppa by the sea. Uh, and it went over and over and over again. Well, actually, that line is repeated all the way through, through here. That three times this line comes up that Simon, goes to, Simon Peter goes to say with Simon the Tanner by the sea in Joppa. Um, and there's significance to that, just as a little aside before we jump in. The significance is, what's a tanner? It's someone that takes animals and skins them and then uses their their hide for leather and for clothing. And so you're already in this place where, where you're looking at the Jewish nation. Um, they have these rules that God has given them about how they're supposed to live uh, as God's holy people. There are things that they're supposed to do, there are things they're not supposed to do. And one of the big no-nos is dead things. Don't be near or touch dead things. So you've got Simon Peter has gone and stayed at the home of this guy who specializes in dead things. Um, So there's already a little barrier being broken in Simon's willingness to to go stay there. But, But there's work that needs to be done. And this story is all about God breaking down a barrier. He's breaking down barriers sociologically for the gospel to be able to go forth. But it all starts with God breaking a barrier that exists in Simon Peter. Um, and it's a barrier that exists in us. There are multiple of them, and God wants to tear them down. So um, I want to start with this. We all carry prejudices, right? This is, this is something, <laughs> something that, that sometimes we go, no, not me. <laughs> Every human being carries prejudices. We have decided in our minds who is in and who is out. We've decided who is clean and who is unclean. In the church, we've decided who's acceptable to God and who's not acceptable to God. In the history of the country, in the history of the world, we've decided what skin colors are okay and which ones aren't. We've decided what religions are okay and which ones aren't. We have cultivated these prejudices. 
Uh, we've decided if you go to that school over there, you're probably not a very good person for my kids to hang out with, but if you go to that school over there, then you're probably an okay person. We've even got prejudices that if you drive a Subaru Outback, it means you're this kind of person. But if you drive a big truck that's been lifted, then that means you're this kind of person. We, we've, we've set up these systems in our head. We've decided you come to church in a suit, that means one thing. You come to church in shiny red shoes, that means something else. <laughs> we've made these judgments and these barriers and these systems that we've put in, in our place. So we've decided who's in and out. When it comes to the church, when it comes to our faith, we are, are the homeless in or are they out? The sexually broken, are they in or are they out? When it comes to being God's chosen people, other faiths, are they in or are they out? Our belligerent neighbors that, that, that are really antagonistic towards our faith, uh, celebrities, political leaders, churches, denominations, people with different theology, those who drink alcohol, those who watch R-rated movies, those who do yoga. Like we've decided, are, are they in or are they out? And we make judgments on people based on what they're doing, what they say, what they wear, where they come from. Uh, and so we walk around in life carrying these prejudices, and most of the time we don't even realize we're doing it. When it comes to ministry, it's not just prejudices against people. Um, we're reading through a great book with our leadership team right now, and one of the things it's talking a lot about is the paradigms that we carry into ministry. We all have prejudices about how ministry should be because we've got an idea in our head of this is what it looks like. Sunday school for adults is what good church looks like. Worship that uses an organ is what good church looks like. Worship in a dark room with a smoke machine and trendy people on the stage, that's what good worship looks like. We have these prejudices that we bring to the people we interact with and the way we understand the gospel functioning in the church. And most of the time, we don't even realize we're doing it. For Peter, he's in this situation where he is praying and he has this vision, and, and the story is revealing a paradigm and a prejudice that he carries inside of himself that God is going to try and break down. Well, he does break it down. He's got this prejudice that he's carrying about what the Gentiles are and what their relationship is to God. He has prejudices about their cleanness or uncleanness. He has prejudices about how God can move in them or not. And it all goes back to Leviticus 11 through 15. Peter has been brought up in the Jewish faith. He understands the law as a Jewish man living in Judaism in Israel. He has been brought up and from birth taught what's in and what's out, what's right and what's wrong, what you can do, what you can't do, what you can eat, what you can't eat. It's part of their system. What days you can work, what days you can't on a Sabbath, how far you're allowed to walk before it's considered work, what you can pick up, what you can't pick up. All of these rules that they've been given to determine what it looks like to live amongst God's holy people. The entire law was given to Israel because Israel was set apart by God. And, and they were told, you need to be different and distinct from the nations round about. So God sets out the law as this system that they can know what to do that marks them as different to the nations round about. Some of it is about how they relate to him. Some of it is, is health and cleanliness stuff to make sure they're guarded as a nation. But some of it is to make sure they're not doing the things that the nation round about are doing. And in the middle of this law, in, in Leviticus 11 through 15, th there's this part where it breaks out the, what, like these definitions of what is clean and unclean. 
And it starts by describing like, you know, there, there are animals, if, it's, if it chews the cud and it has a split hoof, it's okay, but if it's not, then, then don't eat it. If it's in the water and it has scales and fins, then you can eat it, but if it doesn't have that, then don't eat it. It's unclean. And, and all of these rules and regulations, bacon is unclean. Do not eat it. You're like, what? Uh, uh, there's lots in scripture that I'm okay with God, but that one, bacon. Uh, but <laughs> Leviticus 11 through 15 is setting up the system, determining what's clean and unclean. And this is the backdrop that Peter has in his mind when it comes to this part of the passage. So what's happened is God has given these instructions, what is clean and what is unclean. And I mean, you can read commentaries galore and you can come up with hundreds of different reasons and explanations and theories as to how God determined what was what. What fell into the clean category and what fell into the unclean category. Some of them are, are it's, it's theological. Some of them are like, it's all about health and cleanliness to make sure their bodies were pure. Some of them are like, it's just to make sure they're not doing the things that the nations round about were doing. There's so many theories. But at the end of the day, here's the thing. God is God and God determined what was clean and what was unclean. He determined what was in and out. And he's saying to his people, you want to be with me. These are the rules. These things are okay and these things aren't. So if you want to walk as one of my people, do the things that are okay. Don't do the things that aren't. But I know you're going to get it wrong. And I know that all of life is difficult. And all of the things that are listed in in Leviticus 11 through 15 are are like everyday occurrences. It's what you eat. It's bodily discharges. It's, It's sex is unclean. It has discharges that are not good. It's, it's the, the way that you interact with people. It's, it's the way you interact with dead things. All of these things that you're encountering every day in life can make you unclean. But he sets up the system and the whole sacrificial system, the day of atonement, uh, these ways that people can be washed clean. So if you read through Leviticus 11 through 15, basically you can't do anything or you're unclean. But it's all right, because God has set a system in place that washes us clean. And as you encounter these things that are clean and unclean, we have the ability to be purified through the system that God has set in place. Um, and that's the backdrop. So, so what happens from there is the Jewish nation grows up and begins to mature. The religion starts to form. And all of a sudden, by the time you're, you're at Jesus' time, you've got the Pharisees, you've got the Sadducees, you've got the Essenes, all these different kind of denominations of Judaism that exist. And they started to look at these clean and unclean rules. And they say, you know, one of the rules is there are clean foods and there are unclean foods. So you don't want to be unclean because if you're unclean, you're cut off from the people of God. So let's not worry about what you can eat or not eat. Let's just avoid all the places where you can find unclean meat. So let's just say this. Let's not go in the presence of a Gentile because they've probably touched unclean meat. And so, so let's just avoid them because if we can stay away from them, that, that guarantees we're never going to be in the situation where we're coming close to something that, that's going to make us unclean. And, and so they began to set all of these rules and regulations and boxes around the law so that they would be two or three steps back from the law so they were never concerned about transgressing the law. Did that make sense? I'll say it again. So, so they had these laws. If you touch this thing, you're now unclean. So if you eat this animal, you're now unclean. So let's step back and make a couple of rules away from that. Let's not go into the house of a Gentile because they have unclean meat. So if I don't associate with Gentiles, I'm not going to be in the areas or around the people that are unclean. Um, 
you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, so let's, <laughs> so, so let's set all these other rules in place to, like, we'll, we'll prep the food the night before, we'll, we'll make sure, we'll set the limits about what is actually work and what's not, so that when it comes to the day, you're not even at risk of doing something that remotely looks like work. So you can walk one mile, but if you walk 1.4, you're transgressing the law. So it got ridiculous, and they started setting up these systems and rules that distorted God's original intent. So the intent with clean and unclean was, if you want to be in God's presence, do these things. And this gives you, as a sinful person living in a sinful world, access to the throne room of God. And um, if you are made unclean, here is the system to wash yourself so you can be back in the presence of God. They started building these rules. So what, what's the result now? He says, you know, you know, it says in our law that if we... Uh, if we're, what's the actual word? I need the actual word. You're well aware it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit with a Gentile. Where in scripture does it say Jews can never associate with someone that's not a Jew? This is a law that they'd built up that created a barrier that was an obstacle to being able to do the things that God wanted to do. And this is the danger God sets up the system of clean and unclean. This is not the same as sin and not sin. And what we end up doing in the church is, is we look at the Old Testament stuff and we go clean and unclean, and then we go, that means clean equals sinless, unclean equals sinful. So if they ate the meat that made them unclean, it's actually sin. Scripture has words for sin. It has sacrifices for when you sin and break the law. This is not about sin and not sin. This is about cleanliness and uncleanliness. So we, we set this, this, this thing up. There's this thing that God says is not good or not beneficial. If that person does it, now they're walking in sin. Good example, alcohol. Scripture doesn't say don't drink alcohol. It says avoid drunkenness at all costs, right? So then we go, touch and alcohol equals sin doesn't say that in scripture. And then we start making judgments on people. If you're over there touching that stuff, you equal a sinner. But it's, we take these things that are un uncleanliness or unwise, and we begin to equate them with sin. And then we set these boxes in our mind, and we start to look at people and judge them and write them in or out based on those things. Now, there are some clear things in scripture that are, this is sin and it's black and white. But there are lots of things in Scripture that are ambiguous, and we turn them into right and wrong issues, that then we begin to interact with the people around us with a lack of love, with prejudices that block us being able to, to, to see and do what God wants us to do. You know, Jesus, when he was here and he was teaching at Mark chapter 7, he has this interaction with the disciples, uh, with the Pharisees, and he says to them, you know, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. He's looking at them going, you've got all these issues about are you washing your hands the right way? Are you touching? The, are you clean enough? Jesus is like, it's not about what you do on the outside. It's, it's what comes out of the person that defiles them. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, but it, it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And saying this, Jesus declares all foods clean. So why did I bring this up? We've got this situation where Old Testament, there's these clean and unclean rules that the religion has developed and all of these laws and in and out and us versus them has developed. Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus is clarified 
I'm declaring all foods clean. It's not what you're taking in. It's what's inside you that makes the difference. And, and then the Spirit's falling on the church, and Peter's going forward, and Peter is still carrying the prejudice and the faulty idea that, that he has to watch the right things and do it the right way, and, and that if he's unclean, then he's not going to be in God's presence. So he's carrying this faulty theology, this faulty belief into his faith that then is impacting the way he's interacting with other people. The second point that I want to put up here tied to this, we are often blind to our prejudices, and this is the thing we see with Peter. Peter is doing the right thing based on what he was raised to understand, based on what he understands of the law, based on the culture that he was raised in. Peter thinks he's doing the right thing, just as us being people that the majority of the people in the room raised in the U.S., you have a way that you view the world because you, you were raised here. As Christians growing up in the church, we have a way that we understand the world based on what we've learned in our churches. Most often what we've learned in our churches is not what we've read in the Bible, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we have ideas of how things work by being in the evangelical camp. We have ideas of how things work because of the theology that we've raised in. So just like Simon, who was raised in his faith, had these misconceptions of God that caused him to misunderstand God and judge other people incorrectly, so we in the church have all of these paradigms and prejudices that we're blind to as it comes to how we react in the world that we're living in. So you have paradigms. There are some that you know, and there are many that you don't. And often the conflict that we have within the church is because the paradigm that I don't realize I'm acting on and the prejudice that I don't realize I'm operating on comes in co conflict with the, the paradigm that you don't realize you're acting on and, and, and the prejudice that you don't realize you're carrying. And then these things come head to head and we end up with all of these issues in our church and the conflicts that arise that then get dealt with for the rest of the New Testament. <laughs> um, very rarely are these things actually based on our heartfelt, honest, humble exploration of what the truth of God says. Most of the time, like Simon, it's because we've been raised in the tradition that creates these paradigms and these barriers that, that we work in and we work towards. As the story is going, you know, here we've got this moment, Simon is, is unaware and God is setting up this occurrence, a divine appointment, an interaction, revelation with God that is going to break open his mind to expose the lie that's there and to expose the way he has distorted the truth of God in order that the gospel will go forth. So, so here's point number three. God wants to tear down the walls that we have erected, and we love to cling to them. <laughs> you know, God starts knocking down the walls, and we're getting our mortar out, and we're like repasting the wall. And as a while I do it, I'll just make it like double thickness so that the next time he can't take it down. God wants to tear down so many walls that we've erected. Those are walls that we've erected in our understanding of him, where we've boxed him in, where we've said things about him that are untrue that then shape the way we live. There are boxes and walls that he wants to tear down that are about our identity, like who we are, who we've been made to be, and the misunderstandings we have of how we're supposed to function in the world. And then there are these walls about who the gospel is for and, and what it looks like to be part of the kingdom. These are walls that often present us from sharing the gospel. If I go back to Paul at college, I was, an, I was, I was planting a church 
And I wasn't sharing the gospel with this guy because I wrote him off as a player that wasn't worthy of it, that was trying to use and abuse my friend. So I didn't share the gospel with him because of the prejudice and the barrier that I'd put in place. You know, it's what we do with our neighbors. We look at someone that's a belligerent, kind of nosy neighbor, and we're like, I'm never going to share the gospel with them. They're never going to receive it. They're not interested. Have you even tried? Have you asked them if they're interested? But we take this barrier that we've erected and this paradigm that we've put in place, and then we write people off. We walk into the grocery store, and you're talking to the checkout person, and you're thinking, they don't want to hear the gospel from me today. No one that's scanning groceries wants someone to corner them with the gospel. Did you ask them? (laughs) What if that person is desperate for hope that day and hearing that God loves her or loves him is the very thing they were looking for that day, but we've written it off? What if your neighbor who's from another country is Hindu or Buddhist or Muslim, and we go, they're never going to receive the gospel from me because they have a different way of looking at the world. They have different paradigms to me. And so we say, I'm never even going to attempt to start a conversation about the gospel. We've written them off even before it starts. And to be honest, the majority of the time, this is the very thing that hinders our evangelism. We, we look at the people round about and we say they don't want to hear this or they're not going to receive it before we even try. Or we're looking at the faulty paradigm that we carry about ourselves. I can't do this. I can't do this means God can't give me the ability to speak this word. So what was a, a barrier that we set up about someone else is actually a barrier we've set up about ourselves, which is actually a barrier we've set up about who God is. <laughs> And so these things are subconscious, they're inside of us. It's our prejudices, I talked a few weeks ago, it's the resentments that we carry. It's the the people and the places that make us uncomfortable. I would never go share the gospel with that homeless person that's pushing a cart over there and looks grubby because that's uncomfortable to me. What would I do? What would I say? What if they're going to hurt me? Um, and, And so we make these judgments that stop us from sharing the gospel. I would never share the gospel with that person. They're from a really wacky denomination. They believe really crazy things. Don't know if they're saved, but it's, but it's not worth it. Um, and so God wants to use us to expand his gospel, but in order to do it, he has to tear down these walls. He has to, in you, tear down the prejudices and the judgments that you make against other people. He has to tear down the paradigms that you have in your head about what good worship looks like, what good fellowship looks like, what good Bible study looks like, what good church attendance looks like. God wants to tear these things down. You have these two moments in Acts chapter 10 where you see the prejudice and the misunderstanding of Peter being corrected. And, and I want you to, to pay attention as we look at these. Like, one is a theological understanding or a, a ministry practice. That rev- and, and when he's confronted with this, he realizes that it's not about who's in and out. He has a misconception of how God functions. 10, 1028, it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit with a Gentile. Not true. But God has shown me that I shall not call anyone impure or unclean. So he's like, God's fixed the, 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 the practice issue. But then a few verses later, as he's, as he's sharing with Cornelius' household, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and, and does what is right. So in this situation, it wasn't just who's in and out. He believed that God had favorites that some people were not in God's sight. 
And so this is a misunderstanding of God, the favoritist God who picks the ones he likes and ignores all the rest. In this moment, it wasn't just correcting his misunderstanding of the law. It wasn't just uh, correcting his prejudice towards the Gentiles. This is a moment where God was correcting his understanding of the very core of who God is. A God that doesn't show favoritism, that, that, that loves and wants to reveal himself to Muslim and Hindu and Buddhist and transgender and homeless and Scottish and New Zealand Kiwis and... Uh, like, God isn't showing favoritism, and we would stop and go, oh, I believe that. I totally believe God doesn't show favoritism. I totally believe he wants to reach everybody, but not Kate Brown. <laughs> right? God, she'll never become a Christian. Right? That's what we do. But not my neighbor. <laughs> not uh, not uh, Vladimir Putin. Like, not him. God's not going to get him. And it's like God's got his favorites. And, and who are his favorites? It's the white people over here in America. You know? And that's the way we operate. We don't realize we're doing it. But, but we have these paradigms in place. And I, I'm making light of it. But they're subtle and they're there. And as soon as we go, our way of doing church is the right way. Our way of viewing theology is the right way. Our way of practicing ministry is the right way. We're saying that this is the way God wants it to be. And the rest of the world has it wrong. God has his favorites. He wants the world to look like Americans and the rest of the world just have to spend the next number of years trying to figure it out. This is the things God wants to be tearing down in us. Um, so again, Peter raised in an understanding of the law, raised to understand what was clean and unclean, raised in traditions that said who was in and who was out, raised in a system that created categories of us versus them. And, and again, that's mostly what it looks like in the Western church. We are raised in traditions. We are raised in what God's Word says, but a lot of the time that becomes categories of who can be in and who can't, who God wants to save and who can't. And, and if you're white middle class, I'm, I mean, that, the majority of us in the room are, are here, so I can rail on us, right? <laughs> if we're white middle class, at the end of the day, we want everyone to look like us. We come into the church and go, my issues that I deal with, my brokenness is acceptable, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm a little dishonest when I do my taxes. Maybe I'm a little selfish when I'm trying to figure out where to park. Maybe I'm a little protective of my time and my space. And maybe, maybe I'm a little short with my neighbor. That stuff's all right. But if you're sexually broken, it's not. If you're a junkie, it's not. If you believe in another religion, it's not. If you molest children, it's not. And we say, my sins are all right, theirs aren't. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, we're saying, it, the more you look like a white middle-class American, the more you're in God's favor. And God needs to break these things out of us in order that we can transcend the barriers that will enable us to reach the people around about us. You know, white middle-class people are the hardest people to reach with the gospel because we think we've got it figured out. And a lot of the time, it's the people round about you, and it's the homeless person at the end of the street, it's the checkout person, it's, it's the, the landscaper um, that's recently moved here from Mexico that's working hard to, to, to build his living, it's the sexually broken person at the end of the street that has multiple partners that, that's, that's broken and doesn't know what we're doing. Those are the people hungering. And we often go, I'm not successful in sharing the gospel because we're not sharing the gospel with the people that need it because of the prejudices that, that God, that, that we have put in place. 
Um, the last piece here, which I wanted to start with it, but I was like, it's way better to put it at the end. <laughs> the work begins in prayer. Did you notice it with the passage right at the beginning? Cornelius, it says, he give, gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. It actually says it's, it, uh, it's about at the ninth hour, so it's 3 p.m., which is one of the standard prayer times for the Jewish faith. So this is a guy that is regularly engaging in the systematic prayer time of the Jewish people. And in this moment of his systematic disciplined prayer, he is open to God and he has this vision to, to send for this guy in Joppa that's going to come and share the gospel. And then the story is like, and it just so happens that while the people are going down there, it just so happens that Paul is up on the roof the following day about noon. Not Paul, Peter is up on the roof and Peter starts to pray. And he's probably fasting because it says he starts to get hungry and he's thinking about the food being made. And then all of a sudden this vision happens. And what is the vision? This, this sheep being lowered down, filled with these animals, the description it gives you um, of all these four-footed animals and, and birds and fish, whatever, it's, it's, it's Genesis 124. It's the description of creation and the animals that God put on the earth before clean and unclean existed, right? Because that's not there yet. We're still in Genesis 1, and we've got all the way to Leviticus to get to our clean and unclean. So he's, he's, he's going back, and, and he's correcting in him. Even your understanding of, of animals, your understanding of creation is wrong. I didn't make creation good and bad and, and, and clean and unclean. I made creation, and it was good. You guys are broken because of sin, so I've set some systems in place to help. Anyway. <laughs> But it all began in prayer. Cornelius on his knees in prayer. Peter on his knees in prayer. Both those people in that posture open to receive the revelation of God, cultivating the posture of humility that allowed them to receive the correction when it came. And both of them open enough and responsive enough that when God said to, to Cornelius, send someone, he did. And when God said to Peter, what did he say to Peter? arise, anastamy, arise, and, and go. And what happened when he got there? He got there, and Cornelius had gathered a whole crowd of people to hear the gospel preached. And then Peter stands up and he shares. It all started in prayer. So, you know, like, there's prayer, and then there's prayer, right? You know that? There's, there's like, we're just going to pray because you have to. Like, we're just, God just bless the meeting. There's prayer that's like, God, just bless the food. You know, there's that kind of prayer. And then there's prayer. Like, God, I am seeking you. My heart is open to you. I am humble, ready to receive. Change me, transform me, and I'll do the things that you want me to do. That's the kind of prayer that we're about as a church, right? I hope so. It's the kind of prayer I want us to be about as a church. Uh, that, that, that we're going to seek this. And so that's why we're doing the things we do. It's why we gather at nine to pray. It's why we have Thursday to pray. It's why there's Tuesday afternoon to intercede because we want to be a church that is doing these things. Because I tell you, if you are not consistent in prayer, you will never get rid of the paradigms that you've got built up that are sitting in opposition to the gospel. Um, if you want to be a person that God can use, if you want him to use you to share the gospel, if you want to see people rescued from darkness to light through your life, it begins by cultivating the habit of prayer that listens for the voice of God, that empties yourself and invites him to change who you are. And it's not always pleasant, and it's not always fun, 
But when we respond to it and those walls fall down and we're willing to step over the barrier, um, God will use us uh, to, to do his work, to share his gospel, and to see life rescued from darkness to light. So let, let me pray. God, it's, it's hard because you're the, the good, 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 good God. I said it four times because people think I sound funny. Um, God, you're a good God. You created and everything was good. And then sin came in and it's distorted. And so we live in this side of the fall where everything is messed up and we don't understand most of the time what's in and what's out. Um, and you've been gracious through, through the Old Testament to give us clean and unclean, to give us what's sinful and what's not. You, through the New Testament, have given us more instruction about what honors you and what doesn't. But, but God, we still take all of the things that you reveal and we twist it and we distort it. And it, it makes us feel good to be in and be able to say other people are out. It makes us feel good to, to elevate ourselves by pressing other people down. It makes us good to take the focus off of ourselves and point the fingers at other people. Um, but God, what we need as a church, what the church in the West needs, uh, God, what the church around the world needs is for you to break down these paradigms. God, we need you to draw us to our knees in prayer. As a church, we need you to help us cultivate rhythms as individuals. We need you to give us a fire and a passion and an understanding of prayer. God, in that place, we need you to humble our hearts. We're blind, so we need you to reveal the areas of our life where we're stuck, the paradigms that we're holding on to, the prejudices we have. Lord, we need those moments of revelation where we're driving down the road and we go through a rough neighborhood and we press the lock button on our car doors because we're making a judgment. We need you to show us that that's what we're doing. And help us to understand your heart for the people round about us. So, so God, I guess at the end of the day, what I'm praying is this. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Break our hearts for what breaks yours. Tear down the walls we have erected. Tear down the walls of this building. That, that church would spread out to the people round about us. God, we come here and we worship. Your spirit falls. God, but we don't want your, your spirit to be contained inside these walls. God, we want these walls blown off. We want your spirit pouring over Bentley Street. We want your spirit pouring down Brookwood. We want your spirit pouring down 32nd. We want your spirit pouring along TV Highway. God, we, we want to transcend barriers. God, we want to be effective at reaching the most broken. We want to be effective at reaching those that are furthest from us. God, we want to be sensitive to the heart and the need of the person in front of us. So God, will you change us? Make us like Peter and Cornelius on their knees before you, hearts open, ready to respond. God, tear down our walls, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.